Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm always amazed that while we are worshiping the Lord in our corner of the world in Lincoln, here, just across the country and around this nation, around the world, God is gathering people together for the purpose of glorifying his son. It's just amazing how that happens. Really, for me, the Lord's Day morning is the highlight of my week. Just hearing people raise their voices together to glorify God, to seek to have our minds renewed so that we'll be transformed to be like Jesus Christ. This is the closest to heaven we will get in this life. And so I'm thankful that the elders invited me to come and be a part, and I trust that God's word will be a blessing to you today. Today we're gonna continue with a series that's been going on for a while, part five on the I Am series. And we'll be looking at John 11. So if you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 11. We're going to look at just one part of this great chapter. It's going to be verses 17 to 27. And as you might expect, this title for the sermon is, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, if you've been walking in this life very long, whether you're a Christian or not, you know that trials and difficulties are just a part of life. It's not how it should be, but it is how it is. But for the Christian, we know that God has his trademark work of taking any trial and turning it into an unshakable confidence in him. You might know the story of Horatio Spafford. He was a very successful lawyer in Chicago in 1870. He was an encouragement to many of the, the pastors in the day. But there was a disaster about a year later when his young son died. In that same year, the great Chicago fire ripped through the city and destroyed most of his financial security. It was a hard time, but after a couple years, things started getting back to a, more or less a normal until he sent his family on ahead to a holiday in Europe, and along the way in mid-Atlantic, their boat struck another ship and sank. He got word from his wife who had arrived in Wales in a telegram that simply said, Saved alone. His four daughters drowned in that sea with most of the crew and most of the people on board. He went quickly to meet her, and en route, the, the ship's captain told him it was about this spot where your family died. Many of you know the story that that night, Spafford went into his cabin, and he penned some of the most beloved words that we know. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It, it causes us to ask the question, where do you place your focus when loss robs you of treasures? On, on what do you base your hope so when trials come, you'll remain un, unmoved, firm, and confident on the gospel of Jesus Christ? One thing that we know about pain and tragedy is it provides a, a megaphone, as C.S. Lewis said, to declare the greatness of God in the darkest of times. The text that we're going to look at today was written so that you will have confidence that you can trust Christ completely even when life makes no sense. That you can have complete confidence in Jesus Christ when life makes no sense. It's going to point us to an immovable rock that instead of us holding on to it, it holds on to us. 
Um, so I'm confident this text, whether it's familiar to you or not, will bring us to that place. There's a long tradition in many churches that when the word of God is read formally that the congregation will stand to demonstrate this is not a normal book, this is actually the word of God. And I'd invite you, if you are happy and comfortable to do so, to stand with me while I read to you John 11, verses 17 through 27. And remember, this is Holy Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, so it may be different than what you have, but this is the Word of God. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Friends, the law of the Lord is perfect, and it revives our souls, so welcome it today. And please have a seat. Well, every passage in the Bible has a purpose. It's not there on accident or to fill up space. I like to call this purpose the big idea. And I want to tell you what the big idea for this passage is. It is so that you can confidently trust Jesus Christ when life doesn't make sense. That's the big idea. Now we're going to see four movements in this short passage that are designed to produce in you that confident trust. Four movements. The first one is in verses 17 through 22. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. It's a coming. There's a second movement to produce confidence in you. It's Verses 21 through 24, it's confusion. It's not what you'd expect, but it's masterfully used by Jesus to build confidence. Thirdly, there's a clarification, verses 25 through 26. And lastly, that beautiful confession of Martha in verse 27. So this first movement, this first moment that happens is when Jesus comes just outside the village. The grieving family is inside, and Jesus before he even gets there, is greeted by the grieving sister. Now, these verses, 17 through 20, it's a crucial context so that we will understand that big idea. It's not wasted space. We shouldn't run past this. Now, constrained by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John, when he wrote this, could only say what God wanted him to say. But there are many other details he could have said. Perhaps we would have liked to have known other things, but this is given to us because it is sufficient to build faith in us. And so the question is, why didn't he say something else? And the answer is, what is here, what is given to us is meaningful. That's where the meaning lies. And so we want to ask, what do these words mean? 
Why are they here? So look back at verses 17 through 18. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Now it kind of reads like a travel log. He went to here and he went to there, but there's something far more significant going on. These verses are percolating with peril. He came, but from where? If you know the context, and we'll look at that briefly, he came from about two days' journey, probably in the northern part of the country. He, he had been staying up on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in an area that was more rural. And the question is not so much why was, where he was, but why was he there? What was Jesus doing up there in the first place? Well, Jesus was across the Jordan because he had faced open hostility just recently in Jerusalem which is only two miles away from Bethany. So if you look back at chapter 10 and let your eyes find verse 30, he was speaking to them in Jerusalem and he said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I and the father are one. A simple phrase, I and the Father are one, but for those Jews hearing that, this was the greatest offense that he could speak. And so it says in verse, the next verse, that they, verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. And then they clarify the reason they're going to smash his head in with stones in verse 33. He says, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for the blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is what he had been facing just recently. And as the great Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis said, either Jesus was God or he was a liar or a lunatic. You, You can't just pass this over. We must dispense with this ridiculous notion that Jesus was merely a good teacher or a prophet or a miracle worker. He's claiming to be God, and they knew it. They did not miss this. So they they tried to arrest Jesus, but almost miraculously, if you look at chapter 10, verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It demonstrates his divine control over a murderous mob. He, He evades their grasp, not out of fear, but to keep things precisely on his heavenly father's schedule. It was not yet time for him to die, nor to die in that way. So because of this, he goes across the Jordan into this area by the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he is in the beginning of chapter 11 and verses 1 and on, where he receives this notification that his dear friend Lazarus was ill. But given the distance, by the time it got to him, it was probably about two days old, the news. And we're meant to ask the question, is is it too late? Can something be done? The message, though, itself is loaded with emotion. We can't miss this. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. It says here, the sister sent to him saying, the one whom you love is ill. This isn't manipulation. They're not trying to conjure Jesus to come by some devious means. They're just saying the truth. You love him. 
In fact, this comes out even again later. His love for them in verse 5, Jesus, it says here, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The, the narrator, John, tells us that is true. It's not just an assumption. Later when Jesus is at the tomb and he weeps, people say, oh, look how he loved Lazarus. This is so important. We cannot miss this at this moment. Do you see that Christ's love for us and his love for his glory are not at odds? Now, why do I say that? Because of what he tells his disciples. He loves Lazarus, but what does he do? He stays put. Look at verse 4. It says here that Jesus says to his disciples, illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But doesn't Jesus love them? Wouldn't he, out of love, go and ease their pain and stop this suffering from happening? Haven't many of us asked that same question when you face tragedy? Why, God? And that question isn't always wrong, it can come from wrong motives at times, but it's not wrong to ask that question. But do you see, Jesus said, I'm going to design this death so that I will be glorified. Now, if a human being saying that, that would be arrogant, a megalomaniac, but Jesus is saying it because the most loving thing he can do for anyone is to display his glory. And I wonder, Christian, do you see God's glory as that valuable? Do you, do you love God's glory to the level that Jesus speaks of here? His glory is not at odds with his love for you. They, they work harmoniously together. Do you love God's glory to the point that when hardship comes in your life, you don't despise the Lord, but you look for opportunities to declare, this is my God. He's doing something here. Let's wait and see and invite people to watch what he'll do. Now, Jesus knows that this won't end in death. He knows that he will be glorified, but he says something that's almost troubling, and we could stumble over it, but look at verse 15. He says, For your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I'm glad. I am happy that he's going to die. This sounds like an uncompassionate Jesus, but we know what's greater than stopping a death is demonstrating his glory through it. Well, Jesus says you're going to go see Lazarus, and this danger, this peril is not missed. I love what Thomas says in verse 16 at the end of this section. Let us go that we may die with him. Why would he say that? Because two miles away from Bethany is where those people had picked up stones to kill Jesus. And so they go. And now we come in verse 18 and 19, and we read that his coming is not like a, a trip to the sea. It, it's going almost to the front lines in Ukraine. There is hostility awaiting, and we don't know if some of the same group, these Jews, had been part of that crowd that had stones in their hands or not, but anytime John uses that term, the Jews, it always implies danger and hostility and opponents of Christ. They weren't there looking to harm Jesus, but it generally describes this is a dangerous situation. And this is all given to us and how John builds a situation so we don't miss that Jesus will walk into the worst situation for the greatest good. Now Jesus, from where he was across the Jordan, could have spoken the word and Lazarus would have been fine. Distance is not a problem for Jesus. 
Do you remember a centurion once came to Jesus and asked to heal, heal his servant who was in another village? And Jesus did. Distance isn't a problem. The, the, the time isn't a problem. And death isn't a problem as well. And that's why he arrives after Lazarus had been dead four days. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the story in the background here, but just to remind us that four days is dead, dead. It is really dead. I think we all have superstitions that we might kind of nod to. We know in this country there are different things. In my country, I think it's probably here as well. People might knock on wood or throw salt over their shoulder. They're folk beliefs, and they have them here as well. And here's the, the folk belief among the Jews after a person died, the spirit would hover over the body for three days. By the fourth day, that body was so decayed and unrecognizable, the spirit realized it can't use that body and it would leave. Four days, there's no hope for Lazarus. Just to remind us of, of what's going on here, death is horrific. It is not pretty. After three days, the rigor mortis has left and the body has gone soft all the cells have died. That ever-present bacteria in our body has gone to work to start destroying and breaking down the cells. The person is unrecognizable. You would not want a four-day dead person to come back to life. In addition to this, it would be a putrid smell. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 39, remove the stone, Martha says, but Lord, by now there will be a terrible smell. Or as a King James so wonderfully translate. Lord, he stinketh. Yes, indeed. So this is no accident that Jesus shows up four days into the death. He's not hindered by the time any more than he's going to be hindered by you being dead for 400 years. It does not stop him. And so we get a glimpse of when he comes. It is an honorable thing for the family. Normally the guests came to honor the grieving family, but in this case Martha leaves and she goes out to meet the Lord, to honor him because he is worthy of greater, greater honor. And in verse 20, she sees he is coming and she goes to meet him. Martha accuses us in that Christ is greater than we might think. So here comes the coming. It's a first movement at the beginning, the first scene that's designed to produce confidence. And what is a confidence? Christ is in control. So if life doesn't make sense, you can trust Jesus, right? He's in absolute control of everything. And he always shows up on time. So let's look at this second moment. And it's going to produce even more confidence in us. It's, a, it's actually a strange way of doing it, but it's confusion. So look at verse 21. There's this conversation. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. He wouldn't have died if he would have been here. He, she's not chastising him. She's, she trusts Christ enough. She's expressing her sorrow. And so she is, is coming to him with her, her sadness and honestly expressing her disappointment that her brother's gone. She's not mad at Jesus, but just upset about the situation. But it reveals her confidence in Christ is still strong. What does she say there in verse 22? Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She knows, and this particular grammatical phrasing is it's a definite, deep conviction. Not a passing, I, I have a hunch that. I know. She is certain. She, she knows enough about the Lord that she's being held stable in this moment. But think about what she's facing. Her dear brother is gone. But what does that mean for her and Mary? 
There's the, the loss of financial security. The brother would be the breadwinner. There's a loss of the protection. There's no longer a man in the home. And in that culture, it meant there was no income for them. It, it meant there's no security. It means the life is going to be one of poverty and hardship. Why would Jesus let this happen? Remember, it's to display his glory, which is far better. And yet, in spite of knowing the consequences of what had happened, she still trusts Christ. Now, think about this. Her strength was already there before the time of trial came. And dear Christian, take the opportunities when life is good to deepen your faith in Christ because you'll need it when the storm rocks your life. I, I dare say that none of us have a fully formed theology. We could always grow in our knowledge of God. We always will. Martha was confident in what she understood, but Jesus was about to add more confidence, but to get there, he leads by confusion. Watch what he does. He speaks five vague words. He says to her, your brother will rise again. Five words that she takes to mean a certain way, but Jesus means something different. And he designs this to draw her into a deeper conversation. Now, we're meant to ask, what does he mean by these words? But Martha doesn't ask that question. She just assumes what he means. And so she says in verse 24, oh, I know what you mean. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Once again, this I know, it's a deeply convicting statement. I, I hold on to this with my life. But she understands Jesus isn't giving her the same consolation that he gives to other people. I'm sorry, that other people gave to her. It's different. Perhaps she knew what Job 19, 25 and 27 says. Job, in the midst of his misery, cries out, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. Perhaps she understood what Jesus had said earlier in John chapter 6. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Here, here's the implication for us. Jesus was intentionally vague to draw her in. So when you read scripture, when life doesn't make sense, we're meant to ask, what are you doing, Lord? Give me understanding. It's confusing so that we'll think hard. And so that when the understanding comes, it's that much sweeter and more embedded into our hearts because you struggle to get it. I want to give you one promise that you can hold on to when life doesn't make sense. This is from Romans 8:18, 8, And listen to these words. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He said, consider. I, I, I consider that the sufferings, it means think hard about it. Now imagine this, there's a scale. And there's two sides to the scale. He's saying that if you take all the sufferings that you've gone through, put it on one side of the scale, and then take everything you know about the glory that's coming, put it on the other side of the scale. The glory is so significant and heavy, it's like the sufferings don't even register. We have to keep an eternal perspective. Now Martha was standing on firm truth, but she wanted to know, what she needed to know was would Jesus sustain her? How would he do that? We've seen his coming, we've seen this confusion, and now comes the glorious clarification. And you love this part. Jesus gives us these precious words, and each word is loaded with a soul-steadying security. 
Look at verse 25. It begins with those two great words, I am. It's bold and clear, isn't it? He's claiming to be the God that appeared to Abraham, that appeared to Isaac, the God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, who said, I am Yahweh, Jehovah. Now, he's not, I was, though he has always been. He's not highlighting, I know the future and I'm in control of it. He's saying, I am presently now active here. This reveals that God is always with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So John is highlighting one of these seven I am statements to give a picture of who he fully is. These are emphatic descriptions of Jesus Christ. And they force us to ask the question, do you see Jesus in this way? Is your understanding of Christ this robust? But with each statement that you've looked at and still will look at, there's a unique picture of Christ. Now, he doesn't say, I give resurrection, or I know an incantation that can bring it about. He, he doesn't say that I'm going to offer you a better life than you, what you could have here. He says, I am, I am the source of the resurrection and the life. A resurrection refers to a physical coming back from the dead. A four-day decomposed body will gain life. The tissue will be revived. This can only happen because Jesus is the resurrection. What does he mean by this? The second half of verse 25 gives us a clue. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He'll be resurrected. Now, we, we can understand this on one level, but the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? It means you have no other backup plans. It's Jesus or nothing. I, I don't have any other insurance policies. I'm banking everything on his words. He is so fully the resurrection that it is essential to his identity. Jesus was claiming something that he had said back in chapter 5 that we read already this morning. He said there in verse 21, as a father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son gives life to whom he will. He's claiming to have the same power, the same authority as the father, and he's going to do it because he said back in chapter 5, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. And he's speaking about a final eternal sense, but now he's going to show what he meant by actually speaking those words to one man. And think about this, if he not said Lazarus' name, every dead person in the graves would have come forward. The resurrection means that Jesus has absolute sovereignty over who will be saved as well. You see, dead people can't decide to be made alive. The spiritually dead can't decide to come to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how you entice a dead person, how you nudge them, they will not respond. If you remember who we were before Christ, Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses. All the neighbors who are around us who have not trusted in Christ are walking dead. The only way that they can have life is not by friendly chit-chat over tea. It is by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't forget that what Paul said in, in Romans chapter 1. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So be unashamed of the gospel. And here's what happens. 
You speak the words and God gives life to the dead people. There's a resurrection in Jesus Christ. Jesus also said, I am the life. He is the source of life. Nothing can kill you when Christ has you. We don't fear death. It becomes a servant for us. It brings us into the presence of God. But friend, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you must fear death because there's judgment only waiting afterwards. But life is not just a better temporal experience. It's referring to a quality of life that is so utterly different it is in a category of its own. Jesus is the resurrection. He'll make your body come to life with an indestructible body that can live in God's presence forever. Or for the unbeliever, he'll give you a a resurrected body that can endure eternal suffering forever as well for the consequences of our sin. And then after making this profound statement, he asks this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Friend, do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And I ask you that question, not as a general you, but you specifically because it is what you must hear. The great London preacher Charles Spurgeon recounted that even though he grew up in a Christian home where his parents would pray and and read scripture with him, he was not a Christian at 15 years old. And walking across the country in a terrible storm, he ducked into a small chapel on the Lord's Day morning when the preacher, an inexperienced preacher, was preaching. And as the young man sat in the back, he recalls, I had many things on my mind. But the the speaker looked at me and he said, young man, will you look? Will you look onto Christ? Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. Look up. And he says, at that moment when he was personally challenged to look, life came into him and was followed by belief. And he looked upon Christ. And in that small chapel by an unknown preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon came to faith in Christ. He went from death to life. Christian, it's good to share your testimony with people about what Christ has done. But you must ask them, do you believe? And in that question, God may grant eternal life. There's one final thing we need to look at, one final moment that's designed to produce a confident trust in Christ. It's that last verse, that precious confession. Now Martha's confession goes beyond a simple yes. First she says, yes, Lord. Now we know in this time the word Lord could mean sir, a polite mister, but given the context of what has happened here, Lord is far more significant than that. It means the one who has absolute sovereignty over my life, the one I bow the knee to and I give all honor and praise to. It is a statement that is essential to the Christian life. And Christian, if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, you are not a Christian. Christ will not let people come to himself if they do not accept him as Lord. They do not submit to him as Lord. That's why Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you consider Jesus to have the final authority on what your decisions are in life? Does he have your utter and complete loyalty and obedience? He is Lord, and and Mary highlights that for us firstly. But it goes beyond that. She speaks what she believes. It's not sufficient to have an abstract understanding of God. James tells us the demons believe that God is one, but they are not saved. Listen to what she says. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the one promised from the garden when God said, there will come from you, Eve, one who will crush the serpent, the one promised to Abraham and to Moses. This is the one. He is that one. I, I believe you are that one. And the son of God, what does she mean? Not just a, a biological son, but rather the divine son of God who is equal to God the Father in all things. She confesses that he is the one coming into the world, not just on a holiday or a, a looking around at how his kingdom is. He is coming to do one thing, to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. What does that mean? In only a few days, Jesus will go into Jerusalem. He'll be accused of wrongs that he did not do. He'll be beaten and abused. But the worst thing of all, when he goes to that cross, he will take upon himself the sin of all those who have trusted in him or who will trust in him. The horror of weapon on the cross is that the perfect son of God took our place. And then in exchange, he gives us eternal life. My question is the same that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? If you do, friends, let's tell people Jesus is the resurrection and the life. There are two responses we can have to this. One is to believe it and and experience the joyful confidence that Christ is more than we need. Or you can live in rebellion and one day you will meet Christ and know he is Lord, but the Lord over even judgment. My prayer is that you will rejoice in God as your resurrection and as your life.